that you're here. Glad that you're here with us. Hope you've had a good morning so far. Isn't it great to come and worship God? Isn't it great to come and worship God? I think the fog is setting in. We need to... I'm going to pray for us. Um, I'm doing a series on the family uh, right now. Uh, This is the fourth sermon that I've done, and I've been leading up to this sermon and the one next week, just to let you know. Uh, There's there's probably been nothing that I've experienced in my life like the radical cultural change we see in defining the family as we've seen it over the past five years, really. Um, You may not remember, but when President Barack Obama was first running for president in his first term, he uh, clearly articulated a defense of a traditional definition of marriage. Uh, You'll be hard-pressed to find politicians today um, in certain circles, particularly, um, standing by that same definition. Uh, They would be, in many ways, run out of town. What is it? about marriage that we want to stand for. Uh, One of the principles we've always had here at Fullness Christian Fellowship, and I want to maintain it, is we are not going to define ourselves by what we're against. We're going to define ourselves by what we're for. And so today, I want to look at um, marriage, and I don't know where everyone stands on marriage today. I really... I really don't, because things are radically changing. The landscape is so changing. And uh, I want to be honest with you. I want to be forthright, but I want to stand uh, with what I believe is the Word of God, uh, the truth of God, and why I'm standing there, why we stand there, and we'll continue to to stay in this place. But to, before I do, let me pray for us, uh, because uh, it's really more important what God says than what I have to say today. Lord, we thank you today for your plans, your purposes, and we, we want to begin by confessing, behold our God. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. And so, Lord, I pray that today as I speak that you'll move among us in grace and truth. We recognize that we are all broken in some way. We just may be broken in different ways. So, Lord, forgive us where we condemn others who may be broken in different places than us. And may we instead be a people of grace, of love, but also of truth. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, the verses we've used as as really a foundation for this sermon series, is this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. As I said Wednesday night, really this passage is talking about the church. Um, Paul in Ephesians is saying that the church is the family of God, and when we come into faith in Jesus Christ, we come into God's family. And so in this instance, he's talking about us. We derive our name from our Father God. But in a broader sense... All family derives its name from God uh, because God is the one who created. God is the one who started. In the beginning, God created. The starting point of everything is God. If you ever get off that central truth that God is 
the, the center of everything, then you will have a tendency to kind of spiral out into your own place. In other words, if you think we're the center of everything, if you think mankind is the center of everything, then you're going you're gonna to orchestrate your worldview in a way that says, uh, what can we do to benefit mankind? What can we do to make people the happiest? What can we make people do to, to see the most prosperity? Because mankind becomes the center. A biblical worldview means that you have God at the center of everything. God is the creator. God is the one who made it. God is the one who orchestrated it. Without that central truth, we as Christians really have no mooring. We have no foundation. We can call ourselves Christians because we believe that there was a guy named Jesus who was a great teacher, who some bad people killed, and they said he rose from the grave, and I'd really like to follow him because the morality of his teaching is good. But if you don't really hold to the truth that it was God who created that Jesus is God in human flesh and came and gave his life for us, then our Christianity is really irrelevant. I mean, you're really just wasting your, wasting your time going to church. It may help you raise better kids. It may help you uh, get a better moral perspective of life. But the central truth of Christianity stands, begins, rises, falls on that there is a God and he is the creator and everything is ordered by him. Adam and Eve, created by God, man, woman, put in the garden, given some specific commands. And as we've seen, the enemy comes to her and tempts her, and she sees that the fruit of the tree is good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That we have, right from the outset, this this division that occurs that says, look, I can either follow what God says, his word. What did God say to him? Don't eat of the tree. If you do, you're going to die. Follow me. We can either follow God's word and his spirit, or we can see that the fruit of the tree is pleasing to the eye. It's good for food. It's going to help us. It'll make me prosperous. We can either follow God's word and his spirit, or we can follow our own conscience and our own emotions. It's a choice that's constantly facing mankind. And what we see today, especially when it comes to a definition of the family, is that we're jettisoning, for whatever reason, what God says, and I'm going to show you some things later and talk to you about some people who are saying this, jettisoning what God says in order that we can follow our experience. We can follow our conscience. We can follow our senses and our emotions. How do we, in grace and love, respond to all that's going on around us in in a culture that's changing so fast? Over the last couple of weeks, I talked to you about how God created us man and how God created us woman. Um, Man, I talked about a key word being headship. Headship, uh, as God defines in Genesis 1, 2, Paul talks about it in Ephesians and in Corinthians and in other places as well, that um, I define headship as sacrificial love, spiritual direction, and physical care. That's how I define, based on what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Uh, Headship has to do with men sacrificing out of love, 
uh, giving themselves, providing spiritual direction for those around us, uh, and providing physical care. The word I used uh, that is a biblical word for woman, and listen, I understand that headship and this word helper uh, that I use to define women are are culturally considered uh, problematic. And, uh, but helper, I define not as someone who is subservient to, but someone who comes alongside and strengthens. Why did man need a helper? Why did Adam need a helper? Because in some way he was incomplete and weak. He needed someone to come alongside of him, to, to compliment him and help him. God is defined in our, as our helper in both Exodus and Psalms. It is not a definition of weakness by any means. It's a definition of strength. A helper is one who compliments, comes alongside, provides support for, works on behalf of. When, when, a, when a husband is operating as he should out of headship, sacrificial love, spiritual direction, physical care, a woman is complimenting the work of her husband, helping, you have a powerful marriage. Powerful. The problem is we've so screwed up those words because of the fall. Uh, what happened in the fall? Well, man sinned, everything gets uh, out of whack. Now God says, hey, your desire, he says to the woman, your desire is going to be for your husband. And desire quickly, especially in women, um, becomes disordered. Um, All of us have disordered desires, but because of the the, the way that the curse of sin was spoken, there's this desire that a woman has that, quickly gets out of order. And man, it said, God said, your husband is going to rule over you. Your desire is going to be for your husband, but you're going to rule, he's going to rule over you. Do you see where the words helper and desire, headship and ruling, suddenly got out of whack? Are you with me? You staying with me for a second? So all of us have these hurdles to overcome. Men, now, because headship is all messed up, we become either selfishly aggressive or selfishly passive. And men struggle with this. All, every man struggles with leaning in one of these two ways. Ruling, they become aggressive. I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to force my way in. That's not headship. That's a part of the fall. Or men just check out and say, ah, I'm going to, you know, doesn't matter what I do. I should be doing this headship thing, but and the, the curse of the passive male in this culture is unbelievable. And as a matter of fact, it, it's, it's seen on TV, and um, you see it as a comedic tool, the passive male over and over. It's the mom who knows what the heck is going on. The dad is just totally clueless, right? The stupid man is portrayed in our culture all the time as a means of comedy. And women, on the other hand, because um, men are not acting as heads like they should, not the domineering kind of headship. I know that's the way people think of headship, but that's not how the Bible defines it. They get into a place where their desire is for something more, and their desires get disordered. As we looked at last week, um, we, we talked about three disordered desires that particularly women struggle with. The, uh, the disordered desire for comparison, for approval, validation, that women uh, just get them in a group, and they're going to start talking about their kids or their husband or something, and there's this comparison that's taking place. I don't really feel good about myself. I've got to see where I am. Or uh, perfectionism, 
this disordered desire for meaning by being perfect. And by the way, it's just death. Perfectionism will kill you. Or control. The disordered desire to manage your relationships in order to fulfill your goals. Women struggle particularly, I believe, with these three. At least in my counseling experience, I've seen women who, dis- who, who struggle with comparison, perfectionism, and control on a frequent basis. So men, selfishly passive, selfishly aggressive. Women who struggle with control and comparison and perfectionism. But the good news is that the gospel is powerful to transform us all. We don't have to stay there. We don't have to be stuck there. We, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to believe that when Christ came and the transforming power of the gospel came, and, and Paul says it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, we in charismatic circles have used that to justify we can act however the heck we want in worship. Oh, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. That's not really what the passage is talking about. The passage is saying you are free not to sin. Hallelujah. Right? I'm now fr- I am not a slave to sin. I'm not a slave. I don't have to be selfishly passive. I don't have to be selfishly aggressive. For a woman, I don't have to struggle. I may struggle with, but I don't have to be locked into control or perfectionism or comparison. Why? Because it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. I'm free. I can be transformed. My belief, this is key, people. My belief is that no matter where you're broken, no matter what sin you struggle with, Christ can set you free. If not, then what is the gospel good for? And I'll extend it. I'll extend it to gay, homosexual, adultery. I'll extend it across the board. All of all sin to me is a result of the fall. And we're broken in some way. Here's the difference. There are people demanding to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not broken. Hello? There, there's, I, accept me in my state as I am because I am not broken. The difference is we must recognize our brokenness. We must come to the cross of Christ and we must allow for the transforming power of the gospel to change us, to set us free. Today, if I haven't offended you already, <clears throat> hopefully you're staying with me. Um, this is kind of what is marriage and what is it good for? Sermon. What is marriage? What is it good for? Who gets to call it? Who gets to define what marriage is? So, I, I this week studied the history of marriage. I spent almost all week studying the history of marriage. And I've written a synopsis that I'm going to basically read to you. Uh, a study of the cultural significance of marriage. So, are you ready? I ran a race this morning, so my brain isn't, I shouldn't have picked this sermon to do on this day, but God did, so he's going to take care of this. In studying the history of marriage, you're going to get a wide variety of opinions, usually based on one's world view. Various questions like, who gets to marry? that were based on socioeconomic reasons, racial reasons, religious backgrounds. Various cultures throughout history have had different perspectives as have different countries. In other words, even when we talk about marriage, you've got to talk about marriage where? Marriage in America, marriage in Africa, marriage in Europe, marriage in China. Different cultures have different perspectives on what marriage looks like. 
The first recorded evidence of marriage contracts and ceremonies dates to 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. In the ancient world, marriage served primarily as a means of preserving power, with kings and other members of the ruling class marrying off daughters to forge alliances, acquire land, and produce legitimate heirs. Even in lower class, those who weren't the kings in the upper crust, women had little say over whom they married. The the purpose of marriage early on was the production of heirs. Hello? Making babies. That was the purpose of marriage. Heirs, though. Not just any babies. Someone you could call your own and pass on what little piece of land or whatever you had to them. In ancient Rome, marriage was a civil affair governed by the imperial law. But when the empire collapsed in the 5th century, church courts took over and elevated marriage to a holy union. As the church's power grew through the Middle Ages, so did its influence over marriage. In 1215, marriage was declared one of the church's seven sacraments. I actually thought it was much earlier than that, but it wasn't until 1215 that uh, marriage was declared one of the seven sacraments alongside rites like baptism and penance. But it was only in the 16th century, really not that long ago, if you think about it, the 1500s, that the church decreed that weddings be performed in public, by a priest, and before witnesses. Luther comes on the scene in the 1600s. Is that right? 1600s? Luther comes on the scene, however, and believes that marriage, though sacred, is not a sacrament. He, compared, he says it's sacred, but it's not a sacrament. And Luther actually was the one who believed and pushed the church, the Protestant church, that said that marriage should be governed by the state and not by the church. For most of human history, by the way, love played almost no role whatsoever in getting married. Marriage was... This is great. I found this quote. Marriage was considered too serious a matter to be based on such a fragile emotion. Stephanie Kuntz, in a book she authored called Marriage, a History, said, if love could grow out of it, marriage, that was wonderful, but that was gravy. That was not the purpose of marriage. In fact, love and marriage were once widely regarded as as incompatible with one another. There's a Roman politician I read about this week who was expelled from the Senate in the second century BC for kissing his wife in public. The essayist Plutarch condemned this behavior as disgraceful, kissing his wife in public. In the 12th and 13th centuries, the European aristocracy viewed extramarital affairs as the highest form of romance untainted by the gritty realities of daily life. And as late as the 18th century, the French philosopher Montesquieu wrote that any man who was in love with his wife was probably too dull to be loved by another woman. Romance actually entered the picture in the 17th and 18th centuries when the Age of Enlightenment pioneered the idea that life was about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but not before. They advocated marrying for love rather than wealth or status. That trend was augmented by the Industrial Revolution and the growth of the middle class in the 19th century, which enabled young men to select a spouse, which didn't happen before that, 
Their spouses were chosen for them by their parents and pay for a wedding regardless of parental approval. As people took more control of their love lives, they began to, to also demand the right to end that love life whenever they felt like it. Divorce became much more commonplace, pretty well unknown before the 17th and 18th centuries. Marriage changed dramatically in the 20th century, as we all know. For thousands of years, law and custom enforced the subordination of wives to their husbands. But as the women's rights movement gained strength in the late 19th and 20th centuries, wives slowly began to insist on being regarded as their husbands' equals rather than their property. Marilyn Yalom, in A History of the Wife, there is a book entitled that, A History of the Wife, said by 1970, marriage law had become gender-neutral in Western democracy. At the same time, now think about this, people. I'm giving you a history of marriage as I've tried to read about it from early on. And this is outside of the biblical stuff about marriage. Just a history of marriage. Throughout, up until 1970, marriage was not considered gender neutral. Only in the last 40-something years. By the way, I'm I'm not against that. Uh, I'm not looking at wives to be considered property. But how rapidly the culture has changed in the definition of marriage. At the same time, beginning in the 60s particularly, the rise of effective contraception fundamentally transformed marriage. Couples could choose how many children to have and even to have no children at all if they wanted. And if they were unhappy with each other, they could divorce. And since 1970, nearly half of all couples have. Half. We're we're at about 50%. Marriage had become primarily a personal contract between two equals seeking love, stability, and happiness. Let me read that to you again as our culture has become to define it. Marriage had become primarily a personal contract between two equals seeking love, stability, and happiness. The new definition opened the door to marriage as being defined between any two people regardless of gender. E.F. Graf, who is an author, a woman, she's also uh, a lesbian, uh, wrote a book called What is Marriage For? Question mark. She said this, we now fit under the Western philosophy of marriage. In one very real sense, opponents of gay marriage are correct when they say traditional marriage has been undermined. But for better and for worse, traditional marriage has already been destroyed And the process began long before anyone ever dreamed of legalizing same-sex marriage. The church has finally woken up to the fact that marriage has been decimated. But where we are today, when we're talking about same-sex marriage, it was decimated long before this argument came on the scene. How do we as Christians who want to hold a worldview that is consistent with the Bible, look at this topic of marriage. And so I want to give you three points, three presuppositions. In the past couple of weeks, I've talked more specifically about who we are, how we as men and women are gender created. But today I want to give you kind of a biblical overview of marriage as I, as I see it. 
So the first point is this. Let us receive the purposes of marriage. Let us receive the purposes of marriage. Here's what I see as the purposes of marriage from a biblical standpoint from start to finish. The first one is this, the elimination of loneliness. Why did God even start with this whole thing? Well, God looked at Adam and said, what? Hey, it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. So the elimination of loneliness. By the way, this is a major defense for um, same-sex marriage. The elimination of loneliness. Um, So you can see some different things here as you look at these as well. The second point is this, the expression of sex. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One flesh relationship talks about different things, I think, being united in spirit, soul, but particularly in body. And without getting too graphic, um, males and females were made for each other. The physical anatomy matches up uh, the way God has created So when God creates the elimination of loneliness, he makes his helper suitable for him, one who compliments him, one who is different than him, but comes alongside. He also created us for this expression of sex, which he created us specifically for this to occur. Leads to the third point, which is the multiplication of the human race. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. By the way, of all the commands God has ever given mankind, this is the one we can do. This is the one we've been successful at. There are like 7 billion people on the planet now. We've been good at multiplying. Amen? We've done it. Science has now made it possible where two women can conceive and have a baby without direct contact with a man. Hello? You with me? I'm not telling anything new, right? Y'all have seen, y'all. But the man's needed somewhere in the process, still. Still, somewhere along the line, there's the seed of the man that's needed in the process. Science is not so advanced that two men can have a baby without a woman. In other words, the multiplication of the human race takes males and females. Ultimately, at some point, in some way, we do. Protection and education of children. I see this is a biblical mandate as well. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Part of being married is bringing up children. It's not just about making a baby and giving that baby away. Hello? It's about being a parent to that child, bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Here's a passage I love. This is Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15, and I'm going to read it from the message because I love the way um, he states it here. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God. That's why. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. 
I love the way he words that. I think it's a powerful indication that God wants children that are raised in his image, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Okay, next one. The strengthening of our character. The strengthening of our character. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Paul Paul talks about how this sanctification process works. Now, I know in this passage he's talking about a certain amount of protection, where if there's an unbelieving husband and a believing wife, the believing wife provides some sort of protection over the husband. But without reading you all the passages, Paul talks on a very frank terms about how hard marriage is. Why is marriage so hard? Now, I I understand that there are those who say, marriage isn't hard. It's easy. It's going to be great. We're going to love each other. It's never... Marriage, Marriage will bring out the flesh in you. Hello. The reason marriage is challenging is because your flesh rises up. You want what you want when you want it, ultimately. And then you've got another person. Now, you want to lay down your life for them and do all this stuff, but you've got this stuff in you. And it, nothing, honestly, in my life gets my flesh kind of like my wife. And she's wonderful. But, I mean, I, know I don't get fired up as near as much with anybody else as I do with her. Now, you may think, oh, well, that's not a very good testimony, Pastor the truth i'm telling you and then when i thought i was getting better i had kids (laughs) and oh my word did they bring out the stuff in me i mean i I didn't know how people killed their children until i had some (laughs) hello i mean it just you know it stuff rises up within you why because these in-depth relationships some of you know what i'm talking about you had kids like mine well maybe you didn't There's stuff in our marriages and with children. Why? Because God is more interested in strengthening our character, making us more Christ-like than he is about our happiness. There's this big discussion about happiness versus holiness. I believe God's ultimate goal is holiness in your life. Happiness is he wants us to walk in joy as well. All right. This is one. This is huge. The reflection of our union with Christ. Let me read you this long passage um, from Ephesians. And listen to what Paul is talking about here about marriage. Why did God make marriage? Why did God create marriage? And I think this is really, really, really important. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. 
For this reason, goes back to Genesis 1. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. I don't know if he's talking about Christ and the church or marriage half the time. Do you? What is he saying? And, and here's what I believe is the key component out of this. Marriage stands as a shadow of a bigger reality, which is the relationship of Christ and the church. Hello? In other words, Christ and the church is not the shadow with marriage, the reality. But Christ and the church is the reality. That's what he's really talking about. Marriage pictures this. People, this is why it is key that we hold up marriage as holy. Why? Because there is no, no other relationship. Listen to me. No other relationship that can picture the relationship of Christ and the church other than a relationship between a man and a woman. Parental love doesn't do it. Same-sex marriage doesn't do it. Nothing can hold up the picture of Christ in the church like the union of a man and a woman. And that is key for who we are and our identity in Christ. Listen, I'm going I'm to move through this next section pretty quickly. But even the world, even those in the culture will recognize the benefits of marriage. Um, in a book uh, published by a sociologist, Linda Waite, from the University of Chicago, she's written a book entitled The Case for Marriage. This is not a believer. This is a sociologist from the University of Chicago. The evidence, she says here, the evidence from four decades of research is surprisingly clear. A good marriage is both men's and women's best bet for living a long and healthy life. There are benefits to marriage that even our culture represents. In her book, she states a whole list of them. Uh, married men and women are, are likely, more likely to live longer, more likely to be healthier physically, more likely to be healthier mentally, more likely to be happier, recover from illnesses quicker, more successfully, generally take better care of themselves and avoid risky behavior, and they're more financially secure. In another study, secular research also shows that children raised by their own married mother and father are less likely to be poor and experience persistent economic insecurity. They're, they're less likely than that. More likely to stay in school, have fewer behavioral and attendance problems, and earn four-year college degrees. Less vulnerable to serious emotional illnesses, depression, and suicide. More likely to have positive attitudes toward marriage and greater success in forming lasting relationships. There are incredible benefits to marriage. The world recognizes it to the couple and to the children. Now, if you're here today and you have been, your life has in some way taken a turn where divorce has become a part of your life or you're a single mom raising children, please don't hear me saying, oh, you've lost the battle by no means. But at the same time, can we not hold up marriage and say there's something good about it and good in the way that benefits One last article on this. World Magazine posted an article this past week that said, for millennials who grew up, millennials is that generation, what age are they, Scott? 25 down? 
Millennials, 25 down. We'll go with that. We'll make up stuff. I'm a pastor. For millennials who grew up attending church, having a strong Christian faith and practice today is linked to the quality of their relationship with their parents. That's a conclusion from a new online survey of young adults between the age, there you go, 18 and 38, who attended church as children or teenagers. The survey also found that frequent church attendance and homeschooling were linked to stronger Christian beliefs and behaviors as adults, including the truth that Jesus is divine and avoiding cohabitation. There are benefits. What's the greatest thing you can give your kids that will help them for the future? Dads, love your, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Respect your husbands. Follow the biblical guidelines. I believe when we follow God's plan in truth, great things happen all across the board. Now, within the church, within the culture, and even within the church, there's a move right now to dismiss certain aspects of Scripture. I want us to say, look, let's, we, we follow Jesus Christ. So let's affirm the teachings of Jesus. Um, Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What are some truths that we can learn from what Jesus said about Scripture, or what Jesus said about marriage, excuse me, about marriage. Well, the first one is this. Gender is God's idea. Gender was God's idea. But the beginning of creation, God made them what? Male and female. They complement one another. He goes on and says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Marriage is also God's idea. As we read from that passage in Malachi, marriage is God's idea, not yours. And the two will become one flesh. Sex was created for marriage. Sex was created for the marriage relationship. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together. I believe he's saying marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Let me just be blunt. There are many, 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 many other types of relationships, but they are not marriage. We can stick that label on them, but they're not marriage. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman, whatever God has joined together. Even if some form of commitment, fulfillment of loneliness, and sexual component is taking place in that relationship, it still doesn't make it marriage. Why? Because we're not the ones who are defining marriage. Marriage is God's idea. Now, let me say this. Does that mean that I don't believe that people, regardless of their sexual identity, shouldn't be granted the same rights within... Listen, we live in a country where everybody's guaranteed the same rights. This is not a matter of rights. This is not a matter of... Financial benefits, this is not a matter, to me, this is a matter of who defines what marriage is. And marriage is to be permanent. Therefore, what God has joined together, 
Let man not separate. Marriage is to be permanent. Now, I understand again that we, many of us, have been touched by the tragedy, and I'm going to call it a tragedy, of divorce. God hates divorce. The Bible is clear on that as well. I mean, do you know this whole passage, Jesus, is where, they, where um, I'm stumbling over my words. In this passage in Mark, Jesus is responding to a question from the Pharisees about divorce. Hey, Moses said we could get divorced. What do you say? What does Jesus do? He goes back before Moses to say this was all God's idea. God allowed Moses to say it because why? Why did God allow? The hardness of your heart because we're all fallen. God allows certain things to happen because we are sinful creatures and because of the hardness of our heart. But that is not God's, God's design. I want to show you a video. Um, this, is, um, this is a video, and I'm not picking on Rob Bell specifically, but, I'm going to, but, but I think this is very um, telling about where we are in the church. Rob Bell is an author and former pastor of a megachurch. Um, I read his first book probably 10 years ago. I can't remember how long ago it was now where I read his first book. He's no longer a pastor. He's now living out in California. He's write, written a book on marriage with his wife. It's called Zimzum, which I really don't quite understand the title yet. I haven't read the book. But he was, he was interviewed in a one-hour thing, a uh, one-hour interview by Oprah. He's now... Um, working with Oprah, doing this thing called Super Soul Sunday. And I would like for you, in light of all that you've heard this morning, to hear Rob and Kristen Bell's take on marriage. And, and I, really, I'm showing you this because I want us to learn to discern what we're hearing because it, it's going to sound really powerful, okay? And then I'm going to take it apart for you. Marriage, gay and straight, is a gift to the world because the world needs more, not less. Love, fidelity, commitment, devotion, and sacrifice. I think it's great that you all made a conscious choice to include gay marriage in here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why? Because one of the oldest aches in the bones of humanity is loneliness. And it's one of the things that goes way, way back. Loneliness is not good for the world. And so, whoever you are, gay or straight, it is totally normal, natural, and healthy to want somebody to go through life with. It's, it's central to our humanity. Yeah. We want someone to go on the journey with. When is the church going to get that? We're close, I, I think. I think it's evolving. I think mm-hmm. it's... Lots of people are already there. We think it's inevitable, and it's, we're moments. A moment away. away from the church yeah, accepting it. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Because... As soon as you meet someone, and most of the time when people have resistance to this, and I say you, to them, you, you think we're moments away. I think culture is already there, okay. and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and coworkers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life with someone. 
Well, you sound really progressive to me because I've talked to pastors who are still saying well, that. Oh, I think there are a lot of people who, as they see culture moving, their response is to dig in deeper. Yeah. Is to like yeah, hold their ground, yeah. fight against it. Um, so I think that there are both things happening. Yeah. There are churches that are moving forward or into that area, and there are churches who are just almost regressing and making it more of a battle. Yeah. This is something we haven't talked about on Super Soul. As you listen to that, could you identify, just in what we've talked about already this morning, certain ways of thinking versus other ways of thinking? Okay, if you don't shake your heads, yes, we're going back to the beginning. <laughs> Why? What was his appeal? What was his appeal? Culture has moved there. Loneliness has taken over. And when you have flesh and blood, how can we say no to that? So what is the appeal? It is conscience and experience. And what did he say was, what, what is the problem with the church? We're going to become increasingly irrelevant as we do what? Do you remember what he said? I don't know. It was quick. If we hold as our best defense letters that are 2,000 years old, Scripture to him is irrelevant. Now, again, I'm not trying to... I just want to give you an example of what I perceive as where we have moved. Where we have moved. And I, I, again, I'm not trying to, I, I'm not trying to be a hater, because a hater's going to hate, 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 right? I'm not trying to be that. I, I, I want us to instead hold up. Hold up. Thank you, UTS fans. Uh, I want us to hold up as a model what God says about marriage. Here's what I believe. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Jesus even said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He, did, he said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. It still stands as truth. And here's what we must understand. We can either follow our conscience and our experience. And if you want to do that, I, listen, I, I, understand, I understand the pull of culture on you, but as your pastor and one who loves you and loves the Word of God and loves what God says, we either have to say we're going to stand for truth regardless of the culture or our experience. Why? Because the Word of God, truth, stands forever. Rick Warren, in in an address this this past uh, fall, the Pope called a papal, I can't remember the name of it, but he got a bunch of people together and had them come and talk about marriage in the family. And Rick Warren said this at that, at that time. It is a myth that we must give up biblical truth on sexuality and marriage in order to evangelize. In the end, we must be merciful to the fallen, show grace to struggling, and be patient with the doubting. But when God's word is clear, we must not, we cannot back up, back off, back down, back out, or backslide from the truth. Truth is truth, and truth stands eternally. How do we do this in a facing tide that's coming against us on how we define marriage as being between a man and a woman under God's design? 
again, I, I believe we get to a place where we must honor the greatness of marriage. We must honor the greatness of marriage. It's the overriding principle. Marriage, here's what Paul says, well, the author of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or not, we looked at it. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Look, by the way, it is not my job to judge. Hello? Whatever you consider immoral, the sexually immoral, it's it's not my job to be the judge. What is my call? Hello? What is my call? Honor marriage. Let marriage be honored by all. Let's honor the greatness of marriage. Let's hold up the wonderful plan of God and that when we follow God's plan, by His grace, His plan works. Here's the problem. We in the church have stunk at honoring marriage. All the stats, all the stats say that the the divorce rate, children having, um, um, people having children out of wedlock, um, people cohabitating together, people having, our teenagers having sex, there is no difference between those who call themselves the church and those who call themselves the world, at least in the United States. I mean, the statistical difference is minute. We might be a little better, but we're right there all across the board. Why? Because we've lost, I believe, the honoring of marriage. This is not a legalistic definition, but this is kind of this idea of holding up God's plan, his purpose, and honor about marriage. So the predicament we find ourselves in as a result of same-sex marriage and the defense of traditional marriage we didn't just get here. We, we got here because the church failed to honor marriage over the last century. Maybe the last thousand, two thousand years. Why? Because we are fallen in our sin. Again, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't say, the Bible never says, hey, marriage is going to be easy. Matter of fact, look at this, what Paul says. But if you do not marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry, what? Will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. I mean, this is Paul's honest appraisal of marriage. Look, if you're going to burn because you've got so much sexual desire and you just got to release it, then go ahead and get married. What kind of hold up for marriage is that? I want you to be really happy, get married, find a wife, make some babies, you know, all this kind of stuff. No, if you're going to burn and go to hell, Okay, go ahead and get married. We still honor marriage. When I was in college, I remember I went to one of these Bible study things that you do in college, and somebody was talking about marriage, and they were honoring marriage, and they, they asked us to get out a list and make a list of the characteristics we would like to see in the person we married. In other words, you know, I'm 20, I'm 20 years old, and they're saying, hey, if you could pick your wife, what would she look like? So I, don't, I wish I had saved my list. I wish I had it today for just the stupidity of it. But I, I remember some of the things on it. Like the first one, of course, I put, must love Jesus. 
Well, because that's got to be number one, right? Got to love Jesus. Number two, I want her to be pretty. That may have been number three, because I didn't want it to sound too superficial, you know? I knew, really, my heart pretty was more than Jesus, uh, but I, I actually put, and I think I did pretty good on that one, by the way. But you know what? I was being honest. If I'm going to marry a girl, I'd rather be pretty than ugly. You know, it wasn't a high standard. I just wanted her to be pretty. I mean, I would go down the list. I had my different things. I wanted her to laugh at my jokes. I wanted her to, I remember one was I wanted her to be musical because I was in a music school. I failed on that one. Uh, my wife is, she makes up songs, but she's not musical. Don't, please don't tell her I told y'all. <laughs> you know why? Because we have in a vacuum this idea about what marriage is. Is it going to be so wonderful? As I said earlier, marriage is, it gets, it's got its challenges, people, because it will bring out the stuff in you so that God can work through you to deal with it. But that still doesn't mean we don't honor marriage. Honor marriage. Do what God has called us to do. Let us celebrate marriage. Again, this is, I, I, I'm, this is like part one. Next week is part two. And I hate to leave you kind of hanging, but I knew I wasn't going to get, unless y'all want to stay for another hour and a half. And I don't, so we're not. So... Part one of just giving you an overview of marriage, because next week I want to talk to you about pleasure. Where does the, what does the role of pleasure stand in our identity as humans and in marriage? Because this is the major defense. We want, we want people, I want to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Therefore, my happiness is determined by me doing this. Really, I'm much happier when I sleep with a bunch of women. No, I'm not talking about me. I'm just saying, I mean, you hear, you hear my happiness is determined by I'm attracted to someone of the same. My happiness is determined by um, me having a lot of money. My happiness is determined. So therefore, I know God made me this way. God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I'm going to pursue this. What does God really want for you as far as pleasure is concerned? What does the Bible say about pleasure in relationships and in marriage and of giving your life away? Hopefully what you've heard is this this morning. Our goal is to honor marriage. Our goal is to say the Scripture is clear about the purposes of marriage. The Scripture is clear about the teachings of Jesus. Let's embrace the teachings of Jesus regarding marriage. Let us all honor marriage. In doing so, I don't think we have to stand against anything. Instead, what we stand for is this, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, and throughout history, God has continued and continues to work in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your plans, your purposes, who we are in you. Lord, I I know that the enemy will quickly come in and try and both condemn and say to people all sorts of stuff in concern to what we've even talked about this morning. And I pray, God, that we would stand for truth. But we stand for truth in love, not in hate, not in judgment, not in condemnation, 
but instead to declare that, God, you are a great God, greatly to be praised, and your plans and your purposes stand forever. Lord, where where my mind disagrees with your truth, I pray that you would change my mind. I pray that I would be so open that I would not try and Make truth be what you says it's not. Lord, I pray that for all of us. God, direct our paths. We love you. We love people. Because we know you love people. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up an offering before we leave.